It is good to be together this morning in God's Word, and let's get God's Word open now, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as we get back into our series in uh, Ephesians this morning, we have some new study guides, as you heard in the video announcements a little bit earlier for you uh, to follow along through our series, and uh, hopefully you got one on your way in. If you didn't, um, our ushers can be ready and, and just slip up your hand right where you are. If you didn't get one, we'd love to put one in your hands and uh, make sure that you have one to follow along as we make our way through uh, this series. We also have Bibles that we'd love to put in your hand. That's more important than a study guide, but um, we'd love to put a Bible in your hand as well. So if you need one of those, just slip up your hand and our ushers are ready and uh, we'll get you one of those. In light of um, our amazing time together already this morning in worship and through baptisms, uh, we're going to get right into God's Word this morning. And if you're visiting with us today, <clears throat> we have been making our way through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And last week we said that um, the last part of chapter 3 and now the first part of chapter 4 make up a really important transition in the overall flow of this book. For the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us who we are through faith in Jesus Christ. That if you turn away from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then, then there are some things that are fundamentally different about who you are. That you are no longer defined by your past, that you're no longer defined by your sin, but instead you are given a new identity in Jesus Christ. That who you are at the very core becomes different when you surrender to Christ. Now in chapter 4, Paul is moving us from who we are to how we live. Because when you rightly understand who you really are, that changes then how you live. And it's really important here, loved ones, for us not to miss the significance of that order. The doctrine comes first, and then the duty. The belief comes first, and then the behavior. And it's important to take that in, because when you think about it, there's really no way at all that we're going to be able to live the life that Paul is about to unpack through the rest of this book of Ephesians, unless we understand that we are fundamentally different people from the moment that God saves us. And so with that in mind, let's have our Bibles open. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1 down to verse 6. You can follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the theme of this section here is unity. It's unity. The dictionary defines unity like this. Unity is the state of being one. Unity, the dictionary says, is a oneness of mind and feeling. It's a harmony and agreement on a set of principles. And there's a lot of people in this world who try to be united around a number of different things, right? A lot of people trying to be united around different causes and beliefs and traditions and events and convictions and uh, united around common interests. But as a follower of Jesus, 
And more specifically here, as the church of Jesus Christ, there is a greater unity, the Bible says, that transcends all of those things. And so the question we're asking this morning is simply this, what does it look like for us to be united to one another? What does this unity look like? What does it mean for us here in the body of Christ and within the larger church as well? And part of what Paul is saying here in this passage is that one of the marks of a Christ-honoring church is unity. It's unity, which means then two critical priorities for our unity with each other. You may want to jot these down. Here's the first priority. Two critical priorities for a Christ-honoring church and for our unity with each other. Number one, unity means that we walk in the same direction. Unity means that we walk in the same direction. Now, I want you to to know right off the top that there's a lot that's packed into these first three verses that we're going to look at right now, okay? And we're going to take some time, we're going to unpack what Paul's saying here in these first three verses, and then we're going to do our very best to apply what that means for us here within our lives and within the body of Christ. So notice this, unity means that we walk in the same direction. Verse 1, Paul begins by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Now, you need to understand that there is, um, there's a lot of force here behind what Paul is saying in this very first sentence. It's not as if he's coming to these people and saying to them, hey, listen, here's a few suggestions that you might want to consider. Like, here's a few things maybe for you to think about a little bit, and, and you might want to do this. You might want to implement these things into the life of your fellowship. No, he's not saying that. He's coming to them, and he is begging them not only to see the importance of the life that they have been called to live, He's begging them now to understand that because of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, that their life is not their own anymore. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Like how many of us understand that when we become followers of Jesus, our life is not our own anymore, right? We have been bought with a price. And and isn't that one of the signs of true spiritual maturity? That we realize that our life is not our own, that we are living for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the realization that my life in its entirety is for the Lord. And so as I'm living my life, I can't simply ask the questions anymore, how does this impact me? I can't just be asking the question anymore, what difference does this make for me? Instead, I need to be asking, how will this impact him? What impact will this have on my testimony for Jesus Christ and what he has done for me? Because in the end, our call as believers in God, as followers of Christ, is to echo the psalmist, I have set the Lord always before me. See, I'm not just living for me anymore. I live for the Lord, which is why he says this next in verse 1. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, this is really important. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a call on your life. You understand that? As a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a call that is on your life. And that call, Paul told us all the way back in chapter 1, that call took place long before the foundations of the world when God chose us in his sight to be holy and blameless. But that call, it becomes realized in your life at some point in your past, that definite moment where, where you received new life in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God regenerated you, breathed new life into you. But that call has a present implication right now where you live your life for Jesus Christ. You become more and more like Jesus with every passing day. And that call also then points us forward to a hope that we have in eternal life that is still to come. We have this call that is on our life. And so Paul says here, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word worthy is 
is actually really interesting. It comes from a word that means to balance the scales. Uh, eventually, it had a broader application to, to refer to one thing that would match the value of something else. So imagine for a minute that, um, that you have two scales side by side and you're trying to balance them. Okay, so on one side of the scale, you have everything that God has done to save you in Jesus Christ. So on that side of the scale, you have God's love and his mercy and his tenderness and his compassion and his forgiveness, redemption. You have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ that's on that side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is your life. And our objective now is to balance those scales. And we balance those scales not to show God that we deserve his favor. We strive to balance those scales to show God that he deserves all the honor because over here is everything that God has done for us. Our life is over here. We want to live our life so that those scales are balanced as a way of showing God that he deserves all the honor and all the glory for everything that he has done to save us. See, the problem is that sometimes we load down our side of the scale with stuff that doesn't belong there, right? So we're, we're walking through this life. Paul says this life is a walk and, and we take one step after another and we're walking down a certain road that is meant to make us more like Jesus. And, and isn't it true? Like, don't you know this to be true that when, when you're walking through this life and you're walking down the road to try and be more like Jesus, that sometimes you come to a crossroads, right? And, and you're walking down that road because you want to be more like Jesus, but then you come to that crossroads and you have a decision to make. Do I keep walking down this road that makes me more like Jesus, or do I walk down the road of fear? Or do I walk down the road of worry and anxiety? Or do I walk down the road of addiction and anger? We come to those crossroads in our lives where we have to make that choice. Am I going to keep walking down this road that's going to make me more like Jesus or am I going to go in this other direction? And sometimes we make the decision to go in that other direction, to go down that other road, and before long, the scales within our lives are not balanced anymore. See, to walk, when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to walk indicates purpose. Because whenever you're walking, you're walking somewhere, right? You're like, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? It's like, you're welcome. And so whenever we're walking, we're walking somewhere. It indicates direction. And every single one of us are walking. And we're all walking in a certain direction. The question is, which way are you walking? Which way are you going? Because Paul says, we have a definite destination. It's our calling. It's this calling that has changed us in the past. It's this calling that has implications for us right now. It's this calling that points us to a future hope as well. We walk in light of the fact that we've been called out of darkness and into the light, but we also walk in light of our calling today, right here, right now, to be more like Jesus. So are you walking toward Jesus because of all that he's done for you, and you're trying to balance the scales to show that he's worthy of all the honor within your life, or are you walking in a different direction so that the scales of your life are out of balance? See, that matters massively for us because the Bible says here that one of the key factors in us maintaining our unity as a church will be our shared commitment to walk in the same direction. Now, the good news is that the Bible not only tells us what that direction is, but it also tells us how to walk there. Look at verse 2. Paul says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So he mentions here five key qualities, and he says, this is how you walk now in the same direction. Okay, this is where you go. First of all, he says, with all humility. You see that? With all humility. Notice here he doesn't say, with some humility, just a little bit of humility. No, he says, with all humility. This word humility originally meant to think or to judge with lowliness. It came to mean to have a lowliness of mind. It means, as Tim Keller has described, not to think less of myself, but to think of myself less. In fact, um, in Paul's day, humility was a derogatory term that the Greeks and Romans would use to insult Christians because they thought that humility was a sign of unbearable weakness, and, and yet the Bible continually calls us to that life, doesn't it? I mean, that's the life of a follower of Christ, one who recognizes day in, day out, moment by moment, I am weak. I can't do this. I can't figure this out on my own. I need the strength and power of the Spirit of God within me. So consider this within your own life. Are you walking with all humility? And how do you know that you're walking with all humility? I mean, it's not like you can go to somebody and say, hey, buddy, look at how humble I am, right? Because like, that's an epic humility fail. Like as soon as you do that, you're not humble anymore, right? You can't do that. So, so how do you know? How do you know that you're walking with all humility? Well, check this out. Five signs of humility, five things that if these things are happening in your life, then it's a good sign that you're moving in the right direction. Here's the first. Number one, the humble person says, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Like a humble person understands that we don't deserve any of what God has done for us. We don't deserve any of what God has given to us. Like they realize, the humble person realizes that, that none of this is because of us. And that's the continual course of the humble life. But, but so is this next. Second, it says, the humble person says, Lord, you are worthy. So it's not just a matter of us saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. It's, Lord, you are worthy. Like the humble person, if you ever notice this, the humble person never talks about how great they are. They always talk about how great Jesus is. Isn't it true? Like, I love being around those kind of people who constantly talk about how great Jesus is. Like, the humble person realizes they would not even have a destination to walk to if it weren't for Jesus saving them and then continually transforming them. Which leads then to the third sign. The humble person receives correction for sin. Boy, it's pretty quiet in here now, isn't it? Right? The humble person receives correction for sin. Is it easy no. Is it needed? Yes. The thing is, the proud person will continually push this away. The proud person doesn't want to be corrected because of their sin. But Proverbs 9 says that when you correct the wise person, they will love you for that. The humble person receives correction for sin. How about this, number four? The humble person realizes it's not about them. It's just not about them. Like, are you okay when other people do better at something than you do? Are you okay when other people get a little bit more attention than you do for what you do? Because the humble person will often say, much like John the Baptist, Lord, less of me and so much more of you. Lord, less of me in my life, less of my accomplishments, less of my ability, less of me, 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 and Lord, more of you, 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 you in my life. Your power, your grace, your love flowing through me. The humble person realizes that it's not about them. And then this, number five, the humble person willingly sacrifices for others. The humble person willingly sacrifices for others. Listen, listen, listen. 
just like Jesus did for us. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. A humble person willingly sacrifices for others. So, so Paul says here, we're walking. We're walking. It's like one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, and we keep going. We keep one step at a time. We keep going in the same direction. And he says the first step here is humility. Then the second step, he says, is gentleness. It means to be self-controlled and even-tempered. We often think of gentleness as weakness, but that is definitely not the case here. Um, in fact, this word gentleness was first used to describe a wild animal that had been tamed. I, I love this illustration because you just think it, it's, it's describing a wild animal after it's been tamed, but, but the strength that the animal had before it was tamed is still there. The difference now is that the strength is under the control of a new master. And that's what happens to us when we're saved. We're under the control of a new master. So when the Lord saved, before the Lord saved us in our flesh, we would have lost control of our emotion. Like we would have bowled over anybody who got in our way and we wouldn't have even thought twice about it, right? But since the Lord saved us and because the Lord saved us, we now show grace to other people. We show compassion and kindness and tenderness toward others. So he says we're walking towards our calling. We take one step, that's humility. We take another step, that's gentleness. And then we take another step, that's patience, he says next. More specifically, it's enduring pain or unhappiness and not giving in. It's persistence in our convictions, especially when things don't go our way. That's what Paul means by patience when he uses it here in this context. And then he says, bearing with one another in love. Like this walks hand in hand with patience, right? It's the idea of enduring for the sake of someone else. Bearing with one another in love. In fact, sometimes it's even the idea of enduring someone else. Picking up what I'm putting down here? Right? It's sometimes it's just enduring someone else. It's realizing that, listen, everyone here is a work in progress with God. Right? Including you and including me. But he also says here that we do this in love. Notice, bearing with one another in love. That means that we are intentionally seeking the greatest good of the other person. So it's purposely putting ourselves out there and asking and praying, what would God have me do to help this person experience the greatest good in this situation? We bear with one another in love. And so Paul says one step, humility. Next step, gentleness. Step after that is patience. Next step, bear with each other in love. And then the next step, he says, verse 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you need to hear again, this is an emphatic statement again here. Okay. In other words, Paul is saying, spare no expense to uphold your unity. Like, spare no cost in this. Make sure you do everything that you possibly can to uphold the unity that you have been given in the Spirit of God. So when you read this section, you need to feel the tone. Okay, You need to hear the tone of how Paul's coming across because he says uh, back in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now he says, eager to maintain, zealous to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But notice what he's saying here. He's not talking here about organizational unity. Like he's not talking about make sure you've got all your systems and your structures in place, make sure your flow is good, make sure you've got this and that and you've got your org chart all together and, and all your ducks are lined up in a row. Like does organization matter to God? 
Yes, it matters greatly to God. But understand, that's not what he's talking about here. Here, he's talking about the unity that we have because the Spirit of God has brought us together through faith in Jesus Christ. So, see this. Our unity with one another begins with life. Because it is the Spirit of God who gives us new life. It's the Spirit of God who breathes new life into us. Our unity with one another begins with life in Christ. And so he doesn't say here, maintain the unity of doctrine. He doesn't say here, maintain unity with people who think like you do, people who look like you do, people who do like you do. He doesn't say any of that. Is that important? Absolutely it is. But notice what he says here. He says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit of God gives us life. So, if a person has not been born again, then there is no unity with God And there is, therefore, no unity with the people of God. Which is why he says next that the whole thing is held together by the bond of peace. A bond is, um, it's a little bit like a a belt. It's it's a fastener. Um, Later in our series, in chapter 6, Lord willing, when we get there, we're going to talk more about the armor of God. And one of the most critical pieces of the armor of God is the belt. Because the belt in the middle is what holds the upper armor together with the lower armor. And if that belt is not there, holding those two pieces together, then everything doesn't fit the way that it's supposed to fit. And, and it's not really going to equip that soldier to go into battle and do the things that he needs to do. And here, Paul says that the peace of God through Christ is what has brought us together. But at the same time, that is what is going to hold everything else in its rightful place. So I already talked a little bit about that back in chapter 2. And so, so here's the thing. If we ever get to the place as a church where we try to substitute something other than the finished work of Jesus as the one thing that will keep us together, then everything else will eventually fall out of place. It's not going to be the way that it's supposed to be. So he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, deep breath. That's a lot in three verses, right? What does that mean for us? Think about what this means. If we are committing to walking in the same direction, if we are committing to living in these qualities, then that means that there are certain things that must first die. You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. If we're going to walk in humility then pride needs to die. It needs to die for all of us. It needs to die in you. It needs to die in me. If we're going to walk in gentleness, then harshness has to die. If we're going to walk in patience, then anger has to die. If we're going to walk in enduring love for one another, then entitlement has to die. And the thing is, oftentimes... We try really hard to be those things. We try really hard to do those things, right? But, but it feels like we fail so often and, and we're just left asking ourselves, well, how am I supposed to do this? 
Like, how am I supposed to live this kind of life with all of these people? And, and if this is the foundation of our unity, then how am I supposed to bring this together? How can I possibly be all of those things? And the beautiful thing about the Word of God is that it, not, it doesn't just tell us what we need to do. It tells us also how we get to do it. Listen, the way that we live this kind of life, Paul says, he tells us right here, it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will do this. The Spirit of God who unites us in Christ will bring these things about within our lives if we will seek Him for His power to live in this way. So that means you seeking after the Spirit of God, me seeking after the Spirit of God to live in this way. Listen, if we're going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, if we're going to be zealous, if we're going to go hard after this to maintain our unity, then it means, one of the things that it means is that there is no place for gossip in this church. It means that there's no room for, for us talking behind each other's backs about each other. Now, loved ones, hear me. Okay, hear me. Hear my heart in this. I say this as a warning for us. Because... How many of us have heard story after story after story after story about churches that have been absolutely pummeled by unrelenting gossip? Like over and over and over again. And, and can we just acknowledge again this morning that we are not a perfect church? Can we just acknowledge that, right? Amen? We're not, we've said it before, we're not perfect, but we're being perfected. Praise God for that. And, and that sometimes in our relationships with each other, things are going to break down. Things are going to try and poke into that unity. Things are, are not going to go the way that we think they should or the way that we thought they would. And sometimes feelings are going to get hurt. And, and sometimes, in fact, many times, maybe even almost all the time, there is no way that all of us see the entire picture of what's going on all the time. Like no matter what the situation is, as much as we think we do, we don't see the entire picture of everything that's going on. And sometimes the hard part of maintaining our unity means that we need to take care of the relational breakdowns like the Bible tells us to. First step is to go to the person directly and, and try to make it right. If that doesn't work, we take someone else. If that doesn't work, then we follow the remaining steps to try and make things right. And we do all of that in a spirit of love and grace with a desire for reconciliation and restoration within the relationship. But we have to understand that if we are committed to all walking together in the same direction towards our calling, then that means that within a community of faith like this, that bitterness has to die. Resentment has to die. Envy has to die. Jealousy has to die. Pride has to die. Unforgiveness has to die. And when those things and others like them start getting knocked off within our lives and, and start getting knocked off within the life of the family of God, that's when grace lives. And that's when forgiveness lives. And, and that's when holiness lives and humility lives and love lives. And that is when unity remains. One of the things that I love so much about our elders, it's a lot to love about those guys, by the way, but... One of the things that um, I love so much about our elders is that we are sold out committed to the unity that we have together with each other in Jesus Christ and, and the unity that God has given us within this family of faith right here and to the point 
that if there's potential for anything that we say or do uh, to be taken the wrong way or to be misunderstood or if we see one another saying or doing something that has the potential to be taken the wrong way, anything really that could pose a threat to our unity, that we're going to keep a very short account with each other. Like, we're going to take care of those things as soon as we possibly can. And, and quite frankly, there have been times where in meetings or shortly after meetings, we've texted each other or we've said in the meeting, listen, what I just said may have come across the wrong way. Didn't mean it to come across the way that it did, but nonetheless, it did. Will you please forgive me for that? And the whole point of that is just short accounts. Short accounts with each other all over the place, everywhere in every relationship. And the point of that is that we don't want that just to be a pattern for us within that elder team. We want that to be a pattern for the entire church. Like short accounts with everybody all over the place in every relationship. When something's said, when something's done, when something has the ability to be misunderstood or taken the wrong way and you're processing it later and you're thinking, man, did, that, did I say that the way I thought I did or, or the way that I should have? Maybe I need to go back and clarify and, and just make sure that every, anything that poses a threat to our unity, short accounts. Going and we're clearing that up right away. Doing what needs to be done to maintain the unity of the spirit among us. Why? Why do we do that? Here's why. Because the more that we live like Jesus individually, listen, the more that, that you and I commit to living like Jesus individually, the more united we are going to be collectively. When we all pursue Jesus, when we're all walking in the same direction, that's the life and that's the church that God is going to bless. Two critical priorities to maintaining unity within the church, unity means that we walk in the same direction. Here's the second priority. Unity means that we are grounded in the same gospel. Unity means that we are grounded in the same gospel. So this now is why we should be so eager to maintain that unity. And you'll notice here that Paul makes a series of seven one statements. He starts in verse four. He says, there is one body. This is a reference here to the church. Talked back in chapter 2, Jesus broke down the wall of hostility and has brought us together into one body. And this body is not divided by geography. It's not divided by language or race or even by denomination. Verse 4, he says, and one spirit. The same spirit of God lives in every believer, Jew, Gentile, no matter what the background. It's the Holy Spirit who creates the unity that we have. And it's the Holy Spirit who strengthens us to maintain the unity that we enjoy. One spirit, verse four, he goes on and says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, I love that part. Like, that's my favorite part in that whole passage. I just love how he says that. The one hope that belongs to your call. Hope is the confident expectation of something that is not yet but will be. Hope is the confident expectation of something that is not yet but will be. And our hope is in heaven. Okay, we can't see it yet. But by faith, we know that it's coming. And, and maybe there's somebody here this morning, I don't know who, but maybe somebody's here right now and you need to, you need to be reminded of that. That there is one day where you're going to see that hope with your own eyes. You're going to see your Savior face to face. You need to be reminded that one day all the things of this life and all the things of this world will all fade away. And one day, we are going to be in the presence of God forever. And all of the cares, all of the concerns, all of the worries, the anxieties, the illnesses, the diseases, all of the this and the that and the questions and the doubts and everything about this life will all fade away in the presence of his glory and grace. 
Like just think, back in chapter 2, he said that Jesus, before Jesus saved us, we had no hope. You remember that? He says, we were hopeless and we were without God in the world. But then there came a day when God, by his grace, calls us out of the darkness and into the light. And like a caboose on the back end of your salvation train is the hope of heaven that nobody can take from us. Like that is good news. And so how does all of this happen? Well, look at verse 5. He says, one Lord. Happens through one Lord. There is one Lord. Jesus Christ is the only Lord. He is the only master. If you think for a minute, this was a huge deal for early Christians to say that there's only one Lord. It was a really big deal because for them to say that Jesus is Lord also meant that they were saying that Caesar is not Lord. That was like swinging the door wide open for a ton of persecution. It was also a big deal for uh, Jewish Christians to say that there's only one Lord, that Jesus is Lord, because they were then saying that Jesus is the same God as the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. There's only one Lord. It's to say that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus. It goes on, verse 5, and he says there's one faith. He's not talking here so much about our faith in Christ. He's talking rather about the content of our faith. He's talking about the body of faith in which we believe. He's talking about the way to salvation as it's presented in the Bible. He's talking about the reality that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. He goes on, verse 5, one baptism. This is referring here, like how amazing is this on Baptism Sunday, right? He's talking here specifically, though, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit into this one body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit into this one body. Now, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as the Bible defines it, is the work of the Spirit of God that unites a person to Christ and with other believers at the moment of conversion. Okay? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work of the Spirit of God that unites a person to Christ and with other believers at the moment of conversion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, he says, but we have all been baptized. So like we've all been immersed. We've all been baptized into one body by one Spirit and we all share the same Spirit. See, the Spirit of God works in us in that moment of our salvation to cleanse us from sin and to plant within our hearts an abiding love for Jesus. Now think about this. Water baptism then becomes a truly amazing picture of that inward reality. Like, praise God for these baptism testimonies, amen? Like these two people getting in the tank today and testifying to the love and the grace and the goodness of God upon their lives. Now, when we step into that tank, when we get into that water, we are saying, by God's grace, I am united with Christ and I am also united with all of you who are also united with Christ. Like, think about that. What an amazing theological truth and reality to be declaring when you step into that tank to be baptized. This is a supernatural, spiritual unity regardless of all other things. 
Like regardless of background, regardless of language, regardless of the specific sins even that a person needs to be saved from, that this supernatural work of the Spirit of God is bringing us together, uniting us through faith in Christ into this one family. So whether you, whether you guys, Nick and Paul, whether you were baptized today or for the rest of us who were baptized at some other point in the past, I pray that our hearts are just gushing right now with gratitude to God for all that he's done, that the Spirit of God who immersed you into the love of Christ. Like, think about that. Baptism, immersion. The Spirit of God who immerses you into the love of Jesus Christ is the same Spirit who has done the very same thing for me. And he's the very same Spirit who has done the very same thing for every single believer in Jesus Christ. That is awesome. But he's not done goes on verse 6 says one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all this was something of an echo of the Old Testament confession of faith from Deuteronomy 6 that the Lord our God the Lord is one God is sovereign over all he's powerful over all he is present in all God is sovereign over everything and and so friends I, I just hope that we see here in this passage with so much clarity that what the Bible is talking about here to us this morning is so very different from anything that the world could ever even imagine of offering us. Like you look around in the world and and we see so much division, right? So much chaos, so much confusion, so much lack of purpose and and the unity that we do see within the world is, is so often superficial at best, mostly because that unity is built on things that don't last. But what the Bible's talking about here is absolutely indestructible. Like We need to see that. So, so what Paul is saying here is that our unity, true, biblical, gospel-driven, Christ-centered unity, is not unity at any cost. It is unity that is in Jesus Christ. See, real unity will never be found in compromise. Real unity is always built on conviction. Real unity in the body of Christ is not you give up some of that and I'll give up some of this and we'll try and meet in our happy place somewhere in the middle. No, that's not what we're talking about here. And, And you need to understand that reconciliation in our relationships is different from this, right? Because sometimes Joe needs to stop doing that and give up some of this and sometimes Sally needs to stop doing that and give up some of this in order for the relationship to work and for them to, to come back together. But what Paul's talking about here, this goes one level deeper. Like this is the foundation on which that other stuff stands. This is real unity and real unity in the body of Christ is grounded in the gospel. Our understanding of unity is shaped by looking at the Savior who is the perfect example of humility because he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. He's the perfect example of gentleness because he could have called down legions of angels to save him from the final hour but he showed his strength by loving us when we needed him to. He's the perfect example of patience because he continually shows us mercy and forgives us of our sins. He's the perfect example of enduring love with absolutely no sense of entitlement whatsoever as the Son of God. When he was oppressed and afflicted, Isaiah says, as he was on his way to the cross, he opened not his mouth. He died in our place and for our sins so that 
he could take the full judgment and wrath of God against our sins so that all who would believe in him, all who would turn away from themselves and turn to him in faith for the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life could be at peace with God and then at peace with each other. Furthermore, the one main thread that weaves through the tapestry of our unity is the unity of the Godhead. You see this? Verse four, one spirit. Verse five, one Lord. Verse six, one God and Father of all. So our oneness as a body and and as the larger body of Christ flows from the oneness of the Godhead. The Father has chosen us. The Son has redeemed us. The Spirit has sealed us unto the day of redemption, doing this amazing, redemptive, saving work within each of our lives. Unity means that we are grounded in the same gospel. Here's the thing. When we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, think of what kind of message that sends to the culture that's watching us to the world around us that is watching everything that we do. Everything about this passage goes against the culture that we live in, right? Like, like think about this. Gentleness, patience, humility, love. Really? Like, it goes against the culture we live in. Now, granted, there are pockets of our culture that want oneness, that seek oneness, but it's almost always oneness that's based around superficial things. Rarely is it oneness that is grounded in the God of the Bible and in the commitments of the gospel. And because this goes so sharply against our culture, true, genuine, biblical, gospel-driven unity also then becomes one of our greatest testimonies to a watching world. For the world to look at the church and to think how people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages, different traditions, different preferences, all having been brought by the grace of God to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and are now living the crucified life. Like, like, think about this for a minute. Why does Paul spend so much time saying, listen, if you want to be unified, if you want to be united, then this is the way you need to do it. You need to be humble. You need to be patient. You need to be gentle. You need to endure with one another in love. You need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why does he say that? He says it because he knows our tendency towards sin. He knows the tendency that we have in our hearts toward pride. And if this is going to work, then pride, again, has to die. Arrogance has to die. All of these things have to die, and we have to live the crucified life. Jesus in us, like we heard in the baptism testimonies, Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the flesh, I no longer live, but Christ in me. Like, that's the crucified life, and that's the life that we need to live. That's the life that becomes a testimony to the watching world around us, the one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all, who saved you and me is the same God who saves people in the most remote parts of the world even today. He's the same God who saves people in every part of the world. He's the same God that can save people that we care about the most in our lives right now. That's why we're spending our prayer meeting this coming Wednesday night praying specifically for the people within our lives by their names, that God would do this saving work within them, that God would rescue them from the darkness and bring them into the light, and that they would know a joy and a hope and a peace within their life that only Jesus Christ himself can give to them. We are surrounded by people every single day who need to know that they too can be rescued from death and given life. They too can be rescued from the superficial and changed by the supernatural. They can be united to Christ and brought into the unity of his body. One of the marks of a Christ-honoring church 
one of the most powerful witnesses to a watching world is our unity. And unity means that we walk in the same direction and we're grounded in the same gospel.